15. Oh, we better not go backwards. Studying on Sunday morning a, a series entitled uh, Christian Living in a Pagan World. Guys, don't start up the aisle yet. I haven't gotten to your queue. And uh, Christian Living in a Pagan World. And if you're with us today and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles now. That would be the queue. And uh, you just wave and get their attention. They're, they're just like me. They're type Ayers. Come on, we've got a job to do. Let's get up the aisles. And... Uh, just get waved. They'll get a Bible into your hands. Please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the Twelve, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to to the present, but some have fallen asleep or died. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all of the apostles. And then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. We thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this good news. And we thank you for the opportunity to learn a little bit more about it today, Lord. And we just pray that as we sit and study your word this morning, for those of us who know you, Lord, and have our whole life has been changed, our eternity changed by this gospel, that you would just fill us fresh with a sense of awe and thanksgiving, Lord for the miracle that you have done in our lives through the gospel that was provided through your Son. And Lord, for those that stand before you today, that they don't yet know you, they haven't yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, we pray that today they would come to understand, not just with their minds, but Lord, the way that you speak by your Spirit of the good news that you have provided for them. And that today they would not only hear it, but that they would receive it into their lives and have everything about their past, their present, and their future changed as a result. And we ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that the book of 1 Corinthians, like most of the letters in the New Testament, Uh, is a corrective epistle. 
And Paul has spent the first 14 chapters of this book correcting all kinds of problems that were occurring uh, in the church at Corinth. Now, it's something when you're a church and you get a letter that's a corrective letter. And, and there, there was a day when that letter was hand-delivered to that church and uh, a corrective epistle when it goes 16 chapters. That means there's a lot of problems in that church. And Paul has been addressing those problems for 14 uh, chapters as we've studied thus far. And then at the start of chapter 15, he shifts gears to address a new kind of problem. The problem that he's been facing has been uh, spiritual problems or uh, problems of, of wrong attitude, problems where they're, uh, how they're conducting themselves as Christians has been wrong. But in chapter 15, he moves into a new direction and to address a new problem, and that is a doctrinal error that had entered into the church having to do with the resurrection and specifically with the resurrection of Jesus. Apparently there were some in the church at Corinth who were asserting that there is no resurrection from the dead. And we see that as you look down uh, into a future sermon in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been, uh, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So Paul is dumbfounded that here you have some number of Christians uh, professing to be Christians within the church at Corinth who are declaring that there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, the origin of this false doctrine, it can be several things. The error could have been brought into the church, this doctrinal error, by false teachers, or it could just be that they were allowing, as they did in so many other areas of their life, allowing uh, the teaching, the uh, philosophical uh, views of the world to infiltrate uh, the church and to be influenced by the culture uh, around them. Corinth was a Greek city, and in that day the Greeks did not believe in a bodily resurrection. They believed that there was something after this life, but that uh, that your body was not resurrection. They simply didn't believe in it, and indeed they uh, mocked the very idea of it. And that was the philosophical vibe, the educational vibe of, of Corinth at the time. And you remember they literally mocked the Apostle Paul when he, on one missionary journey, went into Athens, which was the stronghold of uh, ancient Greek religion, and he began to preach to them the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And they listened very politely as they talked about his death and about his burial. But when he began, Paul began to speak to them, about Jesus' bodily resurrection as a historical fact, it blew the whole meeting up. Uh, they interrupted him by mocking him for believing such a thing, and, and yet they we're told that some among that audience did believe him, and they ended up putting their faith in Jesus for salvation. All of that's recorded in Acts chapter 17. It isn't, also isn't unlikely that some who had put their faith in Jesus at Corinth 
uh, did so without giving any consideration to the importance of the resurrection. And so they were easily moved from the importance of the resurrection by the false teachers. And we can understand that. I mean, I preach the gospel in a pretty abbreviated form, but uh, each uh, Sunday service. And so we talk about how Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. And if we'll put our trust in this Jesus and in uh, the salvation that he's provided, he will save us. Well, sometimes you say, I believe that. I want that. I'm going to put my faith in Christ. And a person does that. They're born again and they begin to grow in that relationship. But most of the time, people are thinking about the cross. They're thinking about the fact that he died on the cross to pay the full and satisfying payment for my sin. The resurrection is just something that kind of the preacher said, you know. And, and, it, and it's later on that we come to realize the significance of the, gospel, of the resurrection to the gospel. And so no new Christian uh, can fully understand and appreciate the fullness of the gospel and the life that they've been saved into. That's something that we grow in. And, uh, and so often uh, a person becomes born again, and then now later they begin to come to understand the significance of the gospel or the resurrection of Jesus to salvation. And so some within the church apparently... Uh, or, or very likely considered the resurrection of Jesus this thing you could take or leave, you know. I mean, the main thing is he died on the cross for our sins. And uh, of the resurrection, I mean, you can believe it, you cannot believe it. It's no, uh, no big deal. He did it great, but it has no uh, bearing on me anyway. Uh, but it is a big deal. And Paul's going to remind them of the fact, and us, of the fact that the resurrection uh, is very, very important. And he's going to let them know of that, uh, really in no uncertain terms. Now, clearly the Christians in the church at Corinth were poorly taught. And uh, they're poorly led and poorly taught and poorly, poorly, poorly. It's a terrible... The, the letter is a terrible reflection upon the leaders uh, of, of that church. And so Paul now is going to step forward once again and teach them in a way that they ought to have been taught by the leaders of the church. And the beautiful thing how God works all things together for good for his people is that we end up with this fabulous chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on the resurrection, which we might not otherwise have uh, unless... Uh, needed to be addressed. Now, in case uh, you sit here this morning as a Christian and and you, m- some might be inclined to think that addressing the issue of the importance of believing in the bodily resurrection of uh, Jesus, that might have been something that was important to address 2,000 years ago, uh, but today it's just a perfect waste of time. Well, let me help you to understand that it's as prevalent a problem in the church today, in professing Christianity, as ever it was in the church in, in Corinth 2,000 years ago. Uh, a survey conducted by the Barna Research Group that does a lot of research related to uh, religion and Christian views and these kind of things, that a, a survey found that 30% of born-again Christians, professing born-again Christians in the United States, do not believe that Jesus came back to life, physical life, after he was crucified. 30%. (laughs) 
That's a staggering number. People are not well taught, thank you very much. Um, but that's, that's an amazing uh, percentage today. So how in the world could that be? How in the world are we facing that kind of a percentage? Again, people don't know their Bibles and increasingly becoming more and more ignorant of their Bibles and ignorant of important chapters like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, obviously ignorant of the gospel accounts that speak very clearly of Jesus' resurrection. And somehow they feel as a Christian because they are more influenced by the culture or their own thinking or, or their own philosophy than by the Word of God. They come to think that the resurrection is really no big deal. I can take it or leave it. I can believe in it or not uh, believe in it. And there might be uh, undoubtedly a number of us even in this room here this morning that uh, are in that very same boat, your same, very same thinking concerning Jesus' resurrection and hopefully our study through the chapter is going to change your mind. Um, the teaching of God's Word, it's as important and necessary and re- relevant as it has ever been uh, before. So he begins by speaking of the importance of the resurrection uh, to the gospel, uh, that there is no gospel without the resurrection, without Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so what is the gospel? The word gospel means good news. In fact, it's stronger than that. It literally means great news. And it is great news because it is news from God uh, to man. And it's the greatest news that a person can hear from God. And uh, and that's that we'll ever hear in our lives is this gospel that God has provided for us. And that's why Paul declares in in verse 3, for I deliver to you first of all. And that phrase, first of all, means literally of first importance. The gospel is the single most important message that an individual will ever hear in their life, and it is the single most important message that the church as a, uh, uh, delivers as a whole and that we will ever speak into another person's life individually. And so it's important that we get the gospel uh, right. And I think it's wonderful to realize that when we share the gospel with someone, we are sharing whatever their response. And, and people come to know the Lord long after uh, they have <laughs> figuratively spat on our faces uh, in sharing with them. Uh, But to realize when we share the gospel with another person, we are telling them the single greatest message they will ever hear in their life. Again, whatever they may think of it at the moment, they say that in the United States of America, the average person becomes a Christian uh, on average the seventh time they hear the gospel. So that means six Christians share the gospel with this person and it looks like nothing. And then the seventh time on average somebody shares the gospel with them, they come to know the Lord and then that person thinks they're the most amazing evangelist in history. And uh, at least that's how I feel about myself when I lead somebody to the Lord. 
So, uh, but whatever they may do with it at the moment, there's the realization that when we share this with someone, they are hearing the single greatest piece of good news and the single greatest invitation they will ever hear uh, in their life. When Jesus began his public ministry, he began it by saying, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he called on people to put their faith in him for salvation. And as he did that, he didn't have any sense that he was doing something terrible to people, but he was excited to deliver that message to people. Because people could know there's a different kingdom than the kingdom of the world. There's a different life that can be lived than the life that they're living. People don't have to look at death and wonder what happens at the point of death or what happens after death. They can know for certain. And so Jesus was excited to share the gospel with them and give people an opportunity to turn and to come into his kingdom. He considered that he was delivering the best news imaginable uh, to them. Well, exactly what makes up the gospel message? Paul tells us in verses 3 and 4, and in these two verses you have probably the single greatest definition of the gospel in the entire Bible. God's good news to sinful man. And here it is as follows. Verse 3, that Christ died for our sins. He didn't die for his own sins. He died for our sins. And the reason he didn't die for his own sins is because he didn't have any sins. So he died for our sins in order to provide us with a full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. This is called propitiation. That's a Bible term. Sometimes anything that's over two syllables people are frightened of today in the culture. that Nobody will take the time to learn what these words mean, but they're significant words. And he uh, was our propitiation. Propitiation means the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our uh, sins. And so he died in our place on the cross. As the old saying goes, he paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Now, how is it that Jesus is able to die on the cross and provide us with the forgiveness of our sins? What uniquely qualified him for doing that? The Bible teaches that it was his sinless life. And we think about, uh, when we think about his sinless life and his death upon the cross, I can't help but think about the sin offering under the old covenant as it's recorded in Leviticus chapter 4, where an individual under the old covenant, all of it a picture of Christ, they would come and having sinned, the guilty individual would then bring a lamb without blemish uh, to the priest as the, the individual would stand with the lamb before the priest, the individual would then lay his hand on the head of the innocent lamb, and it was a picture of substitution, the transference as that hand was on the head of that lamb. It was a picture that their sin was being transferred uh, from the guilty to an innocent sacrifice. And as they looked at that lamb, they knew that that lamb was going to die in their place for their sin. 
And then the lamb would be slain before the Lord. The priest would cut an artery in the sheep's neck in order to produce a a quick death. And as a result, this warm blood would begin to flow out of the lamb. It would weaken, its legs would buckle, and then it would collapse in death. And no one with any conscience at all inside of them could ever watch that and not be humbled by the awfulness of their sin. That my sin brought death to an innocent party. And then they would take the blood of the lamb and it would be applied to the horns of the altar by hand in order to ceremonially cleanse the altar. The remaining blood would be caught in a bowl. It would be poured out at the base of the altar. The fat of the lamb was then removed from the lamb, placed upon the altar, burnt to the Lord as a sweet aroma unto the Lord. In other words, what was happening there was not merely this mindless physical ritual, but it represented the heart desire and the prayer of a child of God to God for the forgiveness of sins. That was what the child of God desired, and that's what was required. That was the sin offering. And all of it was a picture of the Messiah who would come, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Again, we spoke earlier about it. Paul wrote about it and declared that, uh, John did rather, that he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the whole world. Jesus is the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. And when you see Jesus on the cross, in your mind, at Calvary, don't see one set of hands on the top of his head or several sets of hands on the top of his head. See the hands of every single person who has ever lived or is alive now, ever will live in human history, our hands all upon his head, he bore the sins of all of us. As the Bible says, for he that is the Father made him Jesus who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's interesting, I think, to realize that the time from the giving of this law concerning the sin sacrifice until the coming of Jesus was about 1,500 years. And so for 1,500 years, God used this sin offering in order to drive home the concepts, two concepts, the concepts of transference and substitution associated with the cleansing of our sin. And every time the sin offering was offered, there was the recognition that the forgiveness of my sins has occurred at the expense of the death of an innocent. That's called substitution. And then there was that realization that the forgiveness of my sin, that salvation has occurred because God has made a way for my sin to be transferred to another. This is called transference. And so for 1,500 years, the Lord had driven home the point to his Old Testament saints. I am, uh, in their hearts, they would re- realize, I am forgiven on the basis 
of substitution and transference. I am forgiven on the basis of, of substitution and transference. I am forgiven on the basis of substitution and transference. So that when Jesus came on the scene as their Messiah and declaring that the cleansing of their sin would occur on the basis of substitution, him dying in our place, and transference, that is, through faith, that they should not have acted as though some, uh, this was some foreign concept. They had been doing it for 1,500 years. God had been preparing them for 1,500 years. And Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would come and do exactly this in saving mankind. Isaiah chapter 53, Surely he, speaking of Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But he was wounded for our transgressions. It goes on to say, And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again in that chapter, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. It goes on to say, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And goes on further to say, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And John the Baptist, to his credit, knowing all of this history, his entire childhood given over to watching these sacrifices be performed, he then looked and, seeing Jesus, spoke to his disciples who were following him and pointed them in the direction of Jesus and indicated that they ought to become followers of Jesus now. And he did so with the words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The whole statement is built upon uh, the imagery in the history of the Old Testament. And what Jesus was saying, or John was saying of Jesus, is that he is the one who is going to die for our sins in our place. The sin of the whole world is going to be transferred to him. And that entire ceremony in the Old Testament of the sin offering was intended to produce a profound sense of horror in people. Some of you are horrified just in the listening of it. But it was intended to do exactly that in each and every one of our hearts. This stunned sense of something seems to have gone terribly wrong here, something is terribly backwards about this entire scene, and it is intended to produce that reaction within us. And as they stood before the tabernacle in the Old Testament, here is the sin offering, living and young, this lamb there, breathing, innocent, all in one piece. And yet just within minutes before their very eyes, it is slain, it is bled, it is gutted, it is cut in pieces until it no longer resembles a bull or a lamb, all because of their sin, and yet they get to continue to live 
And all of it a faint shadow of Calvary, a preparation for Calvary, where Jesus hung upon the cross for my sin. And when the day began, you see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's breathing, and he's healthy, and he's whole, and he's innocent. But in a matter of three hours, he'll be hanging on a Roman cross. His face is so savage that he's unrecognizable for who he is. His body so brutalized that he's nothing but one great open wound from head to toe. And in the words of the Holy Spirit, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And when you look at Jesus on the cross and you realize that it isn't merely a man, it would be horrible enough, but then to realize that it is the Son of God, it is intended to raise the question within us, how is it that He dies and I live? And all of this was intended to produce something visceral within us, both the sin offering of the Old Testament and the crucifixion of Jesus. It was meant to horrify It was meant to get people's attention. And then having gotten our attention, it was meant to teach us something. And that something is something that is lost in our world today and in the culture of the United States today. And that is, it was intended to teach us of the seriousness of sin. And like this great blinking neon light on the highway of human history, Jesus' death upon the cross communicates the seriousness of sin. And people reject it today. And maybe you've talked to them. I've talked to many through the years. They say, I want nothing to do with that Bible. I want nothing to do with the religion of the Bible. I don't want anything to do with that bloody religion. And I ask you, though, how many reminders of the seriousness of sin are left in our culture? Very few, if any. And are we a better nation for it? Are we a better people for it? Are we moving upward or are we moving downward in terms of how we conduct ourselves and interact with one another and how we live? And I'll tell you, God knows that in the fallenness of this world and in the strength of our own fallen, dark nature, that we need a reminder of the seriousness of sin that is greater and stronger than the indoctrination of the world around us that teaches us that sin is nothing and insignificant as opposed to what the Bible teaches, and that is that it is not harmless and that it is an offense to God and needs to be dealt with. And in these sacrifices, Jesus' death upon the cross and the sin offering in the Old Testament, there's the reminder of the holiness of God, that God cannot be casually approached by sinners. He cannot, or He wouldn't be the God that He is and the God that we need him to be. 
that our sin cannot be ignored, but it must be addressed and addressed God's way. And faith in Jesus is that way. So the gospel teaches us that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But further in verse 4, that he was buried as a proof of his death. And then verse 4, further, that he rose again on the third day. And here Paul reminds them and he reminds us that the gospel that he preached to them includes three things, not two things. It includes the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. It takes those three things to provide man with good news in the light of the bad news that is all around us because of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. The gospel is made up of three things, not two things, not just dying on the cross and being buried, but there is no good news for us apart from that resurrection. The fact of the matter is, is that when you go through the scriptures, everywhere the gospel is preached, in the book of Acts and elsewhere, it always included the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel was never preached independent of the resurrection because there is no gospel apart from the resurrection. Now, why in the world is the resurrection so important? Well, there are a lot of reasons. And he's going to get into them in the remainder of the chapter. But one reason is that Jesus' resurrection verifies the fact that Jesus' death paid the full price for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus declared continually in his public ministry. He said of himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the hour of his crucifixion came. Jesus died to pay the price for the forgiveness of our sins. But how are we to know as human beings that his sacrifice was acceptable to God? And the answer is... The resurrection. The resurrection is the evidence that the Father accepted the perfect sacrifice of His Son for the forgiveness of our sins. And it is the resurrection is the Father's way of communicating to us that when we put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, our faith is well placed. And I think that's wonderful. Theological terms. Paul put it this way to make that very point in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, speaking of Jesus who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised for our justification. His resurrection is a proof that he has secured our justification, our forgiveness. Well, if the gospel is the good news that God has provided a way for sinful man to be forgiven of our sins and to enter into a relationship with God that will go on forever and ever, then the single greatest question that's intended to arise in any of our hearts related to all of that is then how in the world do I make that good news my own? How do I receive that into my own life? And we receive that into our own life the same way that they did at Corinth. It was this gospel that had changed their life. 
And Paul speaks of it in verses 1 and 2. Paul came to Corinth and he preached the gospel to them, just as I've preached the gospel to you this morning. And then they did something with the gospel. They did the right thing with it. They received that gospel. He goes on further to say that they were standing in the gospel. The gospel, putting their faith in Jesus, brought a stability into their life that they had never known before, a stability that cannot be known anywhere else but in a relationship with God. It's a peerless uh, stability. And then he declares in verse 2 that they were saved because of the message. And the idea is this. This is the gospel. This is the message that changed your whole life. Corinthian Christians, you, you are living a life, a quality of life that you cannot explain independent of the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. This isn't psychosomatic. This isn't mind over matter. This isn't positive thinking or positive confession. This gospel allowed God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit to come into your life and the quality of life that you now enjoy, not just physically, but emotionally, mentally. God has brought meaning to your life, purpose to your life. God has brought hope into your life. God has brought significance into your life that you never knew. You live in all of this. This is your daily portion And then now, this gospel that completely changed your life, you want to begin to start to pare away at it, to cut away at it, to perform surgery on it, and then leave people who are going to hear something after you with a gospel that can't save them and can't change their life? What was wrong with a gospel that you feel like you've got to throw away? The resurrection. Ah, the resurrection is supernatural. Oh, we don't like the supernatural, so we all want to become Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection or the supernatural, as if that's a great place to live. Living within the perimeters of my own mind, the limitations of my own power. Now, that's exactly what I need for meeting the needs that I have in my life and correcting all of the severe, significant consequences of, of the, uh, the fall is now uh, to limit God to something that I can understand or make him after my own image and make him as powerless as me. As the old saying goes, if anybody can believe the first verse of the Bible, then every miracle after that is effortless. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what's the big deal about resurrection? Jesus spoke, I mean, Paul spoke about it in his own defense later in the book of Acts. He says, why do you think it an incredible thing for God to raise someone from the dead? He created us. There's nothing that's too difficult for him uh, to do. And so here is this amazing thing that's happened in their life. Now they're saved, they're fat, they're sassy, they've got this great life that God has introduced them into, and now they think they're smart enough to now fiddle with the gospel. And I'll tell you, that goes on all the time today. This is the nonsense that occurs in any church that you would go into and they don't believe in the resurrection or teach the resurrection from the dead. That it's just 
foolishness. His warning in verse 2 about believing in vain. Sometimes people get alarmed about that, and they should, but it shouldn't be misunderstood. When he warns about believing in vain, the idea is that to believe in a gospel or good news that hasn't provided an answer for a victory over death is to believe something that is vain or empty in the face of man's need. Without the resurrection, you do not have a demonstrated victory over death, and no gospel that does not provide us with a victory over death can be considered good news. It's just a temporary piece of good news that just gets then whammied on the day that we die. No, we need good news that is not only provides us with a forgiveness of sin, but with a victory over death. And Paul will develop that later in the chapter. And then he closes this section by talking about the witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And he starts to list some of the the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. But before he gets to the eyewitnesses, he's already spoken in verse 3 of the greatest, three, verse 3 and 4, the greatest eyewitness or the greatest witness to the resurrection of Jesus that you can find anywhere in the world. And that is the Scriptures themselves. That's known as the witness of the Holy Spirit. When he said that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures? The Old Testament Scriptures concerning the Messiah who was to come. The Scriptures declared concerning the Old Testament Scriptures, prophetic Scriptures spoke of the Messiah's death. Again, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 53, there's so many, I'll just give you one declares of the Messiah he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He would die for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. Written by Isaiah 750 years before Jesus was born. And then the testimony of the Scriptures to Jesus' burial and his resurrection. The Old Testament prophecy concerning his burial. Again, Isaiah chapter 53. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And then the prophecies concerning his resurrection. Psalm 16, verse 10, where the Lord declared that the Messiah would come into the world, that he would die, but he would not remain in that condition long enough in order for his body to be see corruption. In other words, he would be raised from the dead. David writing said, For you, speaking to the Father, will not leave my soul my in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One, the Messiah, to see corruption. Psalm 16, verse 10. And then he goes to the eyewitnesses. Peter, Cephas is a reference to Peter. And sometime on that morning of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he privately met with Peter. We have no record of when and where and how and the circumstances. But Peter had denied him three times on the morning of, of Jesus' crucifixion. And when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he privately uh, met with, uh, with Peter. 
And then in verse 5, it speaks of the 12 on the night that Jesus was was, uh, resurrected on that Sunday. Remember, they were huddled up in a room somewhere in Jerusalem with the doors all locked out of fear. Jesus appears to them there and he begins to speak to them and to comfort uh, them. He appeared to the 12. Thomas was missing. But the reference to the twelve, that was just kind of a title that was given to all of the apostles who had uh, walked with Jesus and served with Jesus the three and a half years of his uh, public ministry. And then he speaks of over 500 witnesses of Jesus uh, seeing his resurrection at the same event. And he said, they're still alive to ask if you want to go and ask them. And I think that that event occurred When Jesus spoke prior to his death, he told the disciples, listen, I'm going to be put to death by wicked hands. I'm going to rise again on the third day, and I will meet you in the Galilee following my resurrection. He spoke to the women who saw him on the morning of his resurrection and told them, remind the disciples that I'm going to meet them in the Galilee. And so you can imagine that that message uh, was a poorly kept secret if it was intended to be a secret at all. And so many people loved Jesus. So many people had been impacted by his life when they got word that Jesus is going to uh, resurrected, going to appear to the disciples up in Galilee. I bet all of those apostles had a hundred you know, shadows in the form of human beings. I'm not letting you out of my sight until Jesus appears before you. And so something happened up in the Galilee where Jesus met with the 12 and a much larger group was present as well. And at the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, Paul said the vast majority of them are still alive. Take a trip to Israel and uh, go interview them uh, if you like. So plenty of eyewitnesses. He speaks of James, probably refers to the half-brother of Jesus. He only became a Christian, only became a follower of Jesus following his resurrection. In fact, he mocked Jesus, as did the other uh, children, uh, all the way up through his public ministry. But it was the resurrection that appeared to uh, really impact him. And he not only became a Christian, but then a leader in the early church. That speaks also of all of the apostles. And so, uh, again, Jesus met with the apostles again a week later after the resurrection, Thomas being present. And then Paul says, he appeared to me, uh, uh, to Paul himself in verses 8 through 10. And Paul said, listen, I... He felt he was unworthy of the calling that God placed upon his life, unworthy of Jesus appearing to him in this, this way. He declares himself to be born out of due season and uh, to be abnormally born because he didn't enjoy the gestation period of three and a half years of being with Jesus during his public ministry the way that the other apostles did. And so he felt like he was kind of a runt a little bit, so to speak, Um, as a result of that. Verse 9, he said, I'm not worthy because he'd been a violent, violent, savage opponent of Christ and Christianity. And then he speaks of the fact that despite all of that, he labored more abundantly than any of the other apostles. And he traveled more, he suffered more opposition than any of the other apostles did. 
God wrote more books of the New Testament through him, a remarkable life, and yet he realized that it was just the grace of God and God's call upon his life that he was able to accomplish all of that. And so each of these eyewitnesses testified to the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And this is the message, he says in verse 11, that everyone preaches because that is the gospel. That's the gospel you heard, he told them. That's the gospel that you believed in. That's the gospel that changed your life. Now, under the law of Moses, every fact in a court of law was established with a minimum of two or three eyewitnesses. That's what was required. And so Paul, speaking from an Old Testament kind of vantage point here, says to them, in essence, I have provided you with 500-plus witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus and the truth of it. Well, enough about the Corinthians and their problems. Are you saved this morning? Have you received the forgiveness of sins? Do you have the confidence that when you die, you will go to heaven? Not maybe, not what the confidence that when you die, and you will die, that when you die, you will go to heaven. The death has been conquered for you. Do you have an answer for the emptiness and the purposelessness and that sense that there must be something more to life uh, through anything that you've experienced in life thus far? The reason that we feel that emptiness is because we've been created for a relationship with God and until we are engaged in what we've been created for, there's a big empty hole in our lives. And so are you saved? Have you received this? This morning, if you'd like to receive this, receive everlasting life, the forgiveness of sins, to begin a relationship with God, a God who loves you in a way that is indescribable with the human language, how does that happen? How does that relationship begin? It begins when a person just hears the gospel message and then you receive that message by putting your faith in Jesus. A person comes to God and says something like this, God, I confess that I'm a sinner, that I've been less than perfect all my life. And I believe that your, what your word says, that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. And I have the witness of it inside of me. My life is empty and frustrating and purposeless. For all of my activity and all of my accomplishments and all of my what, I have this deep sense that there must be something more to life. So I confess my sins to you. I believe that they have separated me from a relationship with you. But I also believe that you love me so much that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins and that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And I believe that that is the Savior and that is the salvation that pleases you. And so I put my faith in your Son this morning.
to receive forgiveness, to receive everlasting life, to begin a relationship with you, to enter into a life that I've been meant for, created for. And when a person does that and puts their faith in the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and the greatest miracle a person can ever experience occurs and that is the miracle of a spiritual birth, the Holy Spirit coming into your life. And it's real. And everything changes. You say, well, I won't be an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. No, you'll become something even greater. You'll become a life witness of him. I'm not an eyewitness to his resurrection. But I think about when Jesus spoke to Thomas in the upper room on the week Sunday after his resurrection. He said, Thomas, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who do not see and believe. Talking about the life that is ours. If you asked me to build my faith in Jesus upon seeing him resurrected, say, I don't, I don't, I don't accept all of these witnesses. I want to be my own witness or to have what we have as Christians today, and that is the witness of a changed life. To realize that the life that I live, the quality of life that I live in terms of hope, in terms of meaning and purpose, that I did not experience any of that, know any of that until God came into my life. Well, that's a greater witness. That's a powerful witness. And that's what will happen in your life. God will come into your life and he will change your life for the better always. And you will enter into such a quality of life that you'll realize only the resurrected Jesus could do this in me. As Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The powerful witness in our lives that the life that I now live is the life that Christ is living through me. And to know that to be true, that's what God will do in your life today. The most beautiful life that's ever been lived is the life that Jesus lived. And it's the greatest life that we can live as he lives it through us. And he'll give us the power and the ability to do it. And so this morning we think, those of us who know the Lord this morning, to just stop and think. Think about the power of the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He had a lot to be ashamed of in his life. And I have no doubt he felt it all the way to his final breath in some respects. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, unto the Jew first, and then to the Greek. He'd experienced his power. Good to be here this morning, and as we dismiss here in just a moment or two, head to our cars out into the rest of the day, and just to be able to say to the Lord, thank you for the power of your gospel. Thank you for the significance and the quality of life that it has brought to me and the hope that it has brought into my life. 
It's an amazing gospel. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, all of them playing their part in meeting the need that each of us has as a result of the consequences of Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden so long ago. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, thank you for good news. We need it. Thank you for looking at every need in our life that is there because of the sin of Adam and Eve in that ancient garden, the consequences of which each of us bears as their descendants today. And providing a gospel and a salvation that overwhelms all of it and meets our every need. Thank you for this gospel. Thank you for the price that was paid in order for us to receive this good news of the offer of salvation that is found in your Son. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts today And we give you praise for the change that our faith in Jesus has produced within us. Thank you for this living, personal relationship that we have with you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here this morning and you are not yet a Christian... You have not yet put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Why not? What does God have to do? He lays out an unbelievable Old Testament portrait so that you'll recognize Jesus for who he is, that this isn't just something that someone came up. He prepared the way for you to see unmistakably this is the one, this is who I've been looking for all of my life, and then for you to put your trust in him. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that life on the other side of the gospel that he offers to you today. And it's all there for the asking, and it's all there for the receiving.